Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones, bringing you the best nonpartisan information from our experts that you need to know. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast, and I'm very happy to be joined by Yuval Weber, who is the Bren Chair of Russian Military and Political Strategy at the Krulak Center of the Marine Corps University in Quantico, Virginia. He's also been a alumni of our Kennan Institute, being a fellow with us. And he is an expert on Putin's Russia and what's going on in Russia. And I wanted to talk to him a little bit about the historical memory in Russia, something that Americans don't really uh, think too much about. But thanks for joining us, Yuval. Thanks for having me on, Aaron. So let's talk a little bit about this. And I think putting it in context to what's going on right now in Russia we have the upcoming 75th anniversary of what we would call Victory in Europe Day. And that's a big deal in Russia. It's a big deal here. But I, don't, I mean, they, it's a national holiday in Russia. Am I correct? Yes. Uh, and I'd actually say it's the biggest holiday in the, in the entire calendar. Uh, perhaps mm. only New Year's Eve uh, even comes close. Mm. And in fact, it's, it's such a big holiday. When, let's say, we, you know, referring collectively to the West, when we think about World War II, you know, it basically ends with the defeat of the Germans. But, you know, the, the war in Europe was Normandy storming the beaches in France and basically fighting all the way to Berlin. For the Russians now, and of obviously what was the Soviet Union back then, they have a much different interpretation of the war. The war that we think of as World War II is what they call World War II, but their fight, which started with the uh, German invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941, that went all the way to the outskirts of Moscow, and then which included the um, blockade of Leningrad, which is now called St. Petersburg, that fight from the outskirts of Moscow all the way back into Germany and into Berlin, that victory is not celebrated on May 8th as we do. It's celebrated on May 9th. And Russia's war is what they call the Great Patriotic War. So they have, even from the get-go, a very different historical memory of what happened in the years 39 to 45. Their war is only the 41 to 45 part. And how do Russians square the previous alliance with the Germans in all of this? Or is that just kind of glossed over in the history? Oh, so in terms of what we, th- what we think of today in terms of that conflict, we know sort of like in a, in a basic historical sense, uh, Stalin tried to come to an agreement with Churchill, uh, with de Gaulle, tried to get the Americans involved in order to create a second front um, against the Germans. Um, because he was worried that if the Germans would come, they'd be unprepared. They couldn't get to an alliance with the West ahead of time. And so that led Stalin to, be, to basically create his own separate peace with the Germans. And he, what he hoped for the Germans is that basically giving them what they want, which is basically half of Poland and all those areas to the West of Poland, that that would keep basically Hitler and the Germans at bay while the Soviets themselves prepared. That's what, of course, helped the Germans basically turn all their armies to the West. None of that is discussed in contemporary Russia. 
all of this is basically has been memory hold to the greatest extent possible. Uh, and so even discussing Molotov-Ribbentrop, like the actual agreement, we know in a historical sense that um, Ribbentrop, the, the Nazi representative, went to Moscow, went to the Bolshoi theater, got a standing ovation. They signed the documents there. And that's what bought the Soviets two years. We have the videos of the German and the Soviet soldiers meeting like, in, like along the various points uh, in order to peacefully uh, split up Eastern and Central Europe between them. But that doesn't accord with the historical memory of the Soviet Union and the, what I could even say quasi-invented historical memory of the Soviet Union standing up to the Germans from the get-go. And that's why they don't talk about the Second World War beginning with German invasion of Poland in September 1939. So even the idea of when the war started, it's controversial. And, when the, and so their version of the war, 41 to 45, is central to um, the, contemporary, the then contemporary Soviet interpretation of what they did, which is defeat Nazism by themselves, as well as what the, basically the historical memory of Russians today, which is that the Russian people led the Soviet Union and the Red Army in terms of basically fighting the Germans all the way uh, back to Berlin. So that helps bring together a few sort of, un, let's say, unpleasant parts of the actual war into something that is much cleaner, much neater, and much more glorious. Because when we think of what the Germans actually did, most of the fighting on Soviet territory was in Western Russia, but primarily Belarus and Ukraine. Because obviously, like, those places are closer to Germany than, let's say, Moscow. And so that is what the historian Tim, Timothy Snyder called the bloodlands. You know, all those areas that are in between the German Empire and the Russian Empire and was traded, you know, uh, sovereignty back and forth, you know, for, you know, several generations. That's where the real fighting happened. And the entire Soviet peoples in that sense, because it was, you know, big country at that point, was fighting for the liberation of their country, but not exactly the entire Russian you know, Soviet Socialist Federative Republic uh, of that. And so what contemporary Russian historical memory, and this is where we get to Putin really um, putting that glory upon himself personally, is there is a real war that happened, which devastated Ukraine, Belarus, and Western Russia. How the war is remembered today is that the Russians did everything. Everyone contributed to, to the war effort but it's now held to be a really Russian-led effort. So you said that this was the biggest day on the calendar. Before we go into how Putin has taken on that mantle, show us how this really functions as a day, as a holiday. What, what are they doing? What is, what is a, the day actually like when you wake up till you go to bed? So sure. So let's say during Soviet period, Soviet times, there would have been four major holidays of the year. Um, and obviously, Russia was previously an Orthodox country. Now we can maybe discuss how it's trying to become an Orthodox country once more. But back in the days of yore, before the Russian Revolution, the biggest holiday of the year would have been the religious ones, the Christmas, Easter, as well as one's um, Saint Day, like your, your name day. In the Soviet times, all the Christian holidays were, were not celebrated. So the biggest holidays of the year were, the, were New Year's Eve, and so we're going in order. 
May 1st, which was May Day, which is the International Communism Day. May 9th, which is the victory over the Germans that we've been talking about. And then November 7th to commemorate the Bolshevik Revolution. After the Soviet Union came to an end, there was tremendous de-emphasis on May 1st and November 7th because those were associated with the Soviet Union and the, um, the Communist Party. So in contemporary Russian life, uh, there's a number of obviously holidays, you know, sprinkled throughout the year, but it really is New Year's Eve as probably the biggest um, thing that everyone enjoys, but that by itself is dwarfed by May 9th. And so May 9th, this is like if you had Memorial Day and the 4th of July and perhaps even Labor Day, like all those big summer holidays rolled into one thing. You definitely make plans either with your family, with your friends, everyone's going to go to the dacha to the summer house, um, or you're all going to have a big party. Or if you live in or near a big city, you then go to the big parade. So, and this is the parade, you know, uh, that the, the military hardware is going down the main boulevard of Moscow, which is going to culminate in um, the big thing that happens uh, on Red Square, which is where all the not only the veterans of the World War II are there, but also the world leaders that have been invited by Putin. But even before you get all, even with all that, if you're, let's say, in a small town, this is for anyone who's celebrated a 4th of July in a small town in the United States, you'll know that in the county seat, the volunteer fire department, the local high school cheerleading team, maybe like all the different clubs of the, the town or the county, they'll all get together and it really is where you celebrate, you know, the independence of the United States in a very charming and really low tech manner. And it really is perhaps even more fun than, you know, being on the mall in Washington where you see like the big fireworks show. That's what happens in Russia as well. You'll get the little school kids who are dressed up in World War II uniforms. You'll get the high schoolers who basically put on what are in effect passion plays. Um, you'll get all the different, you know, whoever is the oldest possible veteran in town will come, whether he or she was in World War II or not, they'll talk about the old days. And so you, you really have every different segment of society coming together to say, this is our experience. These are our memories. And the government has encouraged um, the May 9th to be, you know, what we would call um, a, a teaching moment, you know, for the younger generations but what they call the memory lesson. They would call it something that would really bring together the entire geographic country, like across everywhere, as well as all the different generations. So it really is something that is celebrated by the entire country. It's a day to let loose. Uh, so, you know, alcohol might be involved, uh, grilled meats might be involved, <laughs> um, but that you really get from the youngest kids to the oldest people, something where they are doing the same thing together. So that's the small town. In Moscow, that's the thing in which um, Putin will use that opportunity to project whatever is his current needs in terms of Russian foreign policy or Russian domestic policy, and then tie that into the commemoration of the victory over Nazism in World War II. Yeah, so I wanted to ask, how is Putin really capitalizing on this historical memory 75 years on what is he doing that's bringing this and making this so 
much a part of his legacy. So it's not, it's not just what is he doing in 2020. He's been in power, like a prime minister or a president, since 1999. So in his, really the first opportunity that he had in May 1999, he was already talking about, and this is the time, you know, it seems ancient history now, but Russia was fighting a, um, a war in Chechnya during that time. And obviously the issues inside of Russia was whether Russia can hold itself together. The year before the currency had collapsed, um, over the 1990s was a difficult time. The country had collapsed, uh, you know, under 10 years previous. The external empire and the Soviet Union's worldwide reach had uh, collapsed, you know, a decade previous. So Russia as a place that did not seem to have a bright future, that's where Putin, even in 1999 uh, and to the present, took every possible opportunity associated with May 9th as a holiday to say, this is Russia at its glorious, this is Russia at its peak, and what we can do today is take those lessons and basically return Russia to its position of glory, return Russia to when it was a great power. As Russia then um, became sort of a much more, like a less unstable country and more of the world power that we know uh, it is today, he did things such as invite more world leaders to the commemoration every year, um, to reintroduce military hardware. Um, and this was a, obviously a big thing because when we, you know, for those of people who uh, enjoy movies of the 1980s, and there's always the, you know, the scene involving the Soviet Union where it sees giant missiles uh, rolling down the street, those are May 9th holidays or, you know, things like that. So by bringing back these images of the Cold War and of the Soviet Union, he was using that, those images to say, we're back in business. In terms of the domestic politics, whenever there is social division, he's done things such as have very public meetings with war veterans. Um, he's also uh, discussed his own family's personal sufferings during the blockade of Leningrad. He's visited churches that have been associated with the war. He's participated in what are called ghost parades, which was something that was a total civil society um, development in which people would just have in their town or city or their village, they would have a portrait of a family member who had died during the war. And when you have a lot of people basically holding a picture of granddad or grandma or whomever else, it lets everyone know we all shared in this common sacrifice. So his people, his PR people, took the thing which had started out in Siberia and basically made that a national commemoration. He's created new uniforms, new military academies that are done in the style of World War II. And so, you know, we often joke about Putin shirtless on the horse. That's meant to basically paint him as this really vigorous guy, you know, unlike his predecessor, Boris Yeltsin, but also it's to paint him as someone who is masculine, who is attractive to women, who's going to be a good father to all the girls of Russia. And each one of the things that he's done, you know, meeting with veterans, old people, talking about his own family, it is to make him both extremely common, to bring him down to, you know, to bring the Tsar down to the level of the common person, but also to make him universal and to make him the person who is above basically all the issues 
that maybe bedevil the Russia of that particular year, but to make him this eternal Tsar, warrior, keeper of the historical memory of the entire Russian people. So it is a huge thing for basically coronavirus in 2020 for a big you know, anniversary, the 75th, for him not to be able to perform World War II for the country at large. So let's talk about this. We've got the coronavirus, of course, global pandemic. And we had an episode, a couple episodes back, where we talked to Matt Rajansky and Will Pomerantz to talk about this plebiscite and the constitutional uh, changes that Putin wants to make for the presidency. Talk a little bit about what's going on there from your perspective. Um, you know, Putin, he wants to, well, he seems like he's trying to make it so that he could stay in power until 2036. Um, and that's, I mean, I have no idea where I'll be in 2036, but Putin wants to stay right where he is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, most normal people don't know where they'll be in 16 years. Uh, but you can say many positive and negative things about Putin. Uh, I think it is a neutral thing to say he's not an ordinary person. Um, Either he will be, in 2036, either he will be long dead and bitterly cursed, or he will be the third longest serving Russian ruler of the previous 500 years. And you know what? Both seem pretty uh, plausible to me. But in a, in a general sense, in recent years, um, when we think about what coronavirus has prevented him from doing, in recent years, particularly since 2014, um, the World War II, you know, the big parade, the big um, ceremony was meant to create a connection between Russia's contemporary times to obviously the war in Ukraine, uh, and the, the annexation of Crimea to World War II and to basically Putin as the man who is defending Russia now and forever and to really connect it back to several hundred years of Russian history. What was intended for this particular 2020 commemoration of the end of World War II. In terms of foreign policy, it would have been bringing all the big world leaders um, back to Russia in order to give Putin a stage um, that he can command the world's attention for at least a day. That would have been obviously like in what, just about two weeks from now, uh, two and a half weeks from now. We are... And so we're recording basically uh, towards the end of April. It is April 24th right now. On April 22nd, uh, the plebiscite, in order to change the constitution of Russia, and really the important part here is we, we were joking about 2036, what the big thing about that constitution would have done is it would have prevented any person from having more than two terms as the Russian president. But it also would have been new constitution, new terms. And that would have been Putin's opportunity to start basically term number one in 2024 to then go to 2030 and then term number two from 2030 to 36. So this is something that had created protests across the entire country. This was something that was criticized, you know, throughout the elites, which are not, you know, basically part of Putin's uh, political coalition all the different, both uh, governmental and non-governmental public opinion polling had been decidedly cool to antagonistic towards this. 
because what the people of Russia um, basically were saying through all the public opinion polling is that this would have been Putin for two entire generations of Russian life. And that would have been perhaps the bridge too far. And so in, re in, in, in basically Earth One, in which coronavirus doesn't happen, there would have been all this basically back and forth contentiousness, controversy. Everyone would have been talking about this day in, day out, up through April 24th. It would have been successful because uh, Russian elections are not ones that are meant to surprise. Um, and from April 24th until May 9th, there would have been a lot of negativity that from the, from the Kremlin's perspective, they would have then turned all the TV basically discussion from the plebiscite directly to World War II stuff and preparations for the big military parade, all the world leaders coming, and really sort of hammered home the point that only Putin can bring the country together. Only Putin provides unity. There may have been dissension in 39 and 40. There may have been dissension before Stalin, but only Stalin could defeat the Germans and only Putin can defeat all the different enemies of Russia. And this is the thing that has really sort of um, thrown the Kremlin for a tizzy is they don't have that opportunity to reshape public opinion in the way that they would previously expect and want. So what's plan B then? Do we know? So, the, so at the current moment, they had still practiced, you know, with 15,000 troops to do the, uh, the parade. Those troops are still under quarantine because now they have to quarantine 15,000 troops. So basically they're going to delay uh, the parade. Obviously May 9th is a, that, that's a fixed date. Um, but, you know, sometime during the summer, they're going to have the, uh, the military parade. They're going to get basically as many leaders as they can, but because world leaders know that May 9th is basically the one time Russia is going to invite them, you know, the, other countries have different holidays. Other leaders are busy with different things. So Putin may not get the, the, the array of leaders that he might expect on May 9th. So it's going to be smaller in terms of the world leaders who attend and really give Putin a platform. And, you know, it might look a bit farcical um, to basically have May in July. So when is the plebiscite rescheduled for? Do we know that yet? So tentatively, they want to do it in June. But with coronavirus being what it is, they don't want to go ahead with the planning for something um, that itself may be delayed and then sort of like, you know, you're, you know, you're starting to repeat things, you know, first is tragedy, then is farce. Um, because then if it just keeps getting delayed and delayed and delayed, it would sort of help the rest of society um, basically organize around opposition to the thing. I mean, you mentioned that there is opposition. Would it be fair to say that this would be a rigged election, though? Right. So Russia, so elections can be rigged in two different ways. One is you just do the, the ballot box stuffing, which that, that's going to be like the, the first major way to do it. But the second major way, and this is the stuff of which the Russian state does even more of, is from Putin down to all the regional governors and all the mayors of cities. They, so what the Kremlin actually does, the presidential administration, is they say, we're looking for 75% turnout with 60% in favor, 55% in favor, like whatever arbitrary amounts. That means that everyone down the line 
you know, this power vertical, everyone down the line knows that his or her responsibility is to deliver warm bodies voting in the right way. So think of like, let's say old style, you know, machine politics of let's say Chicago, New York of a hundred years ago, where basically everyone is bused to the correct place and, you know, observed how they vote. That's what really happens across the entirety of Russia. Mm -hmm. um, because what the presidential administration then does is they look, oh, in this province or in that town, um, we got enough. Therefore, we're going to send more resources to that area. If it doesn't come, that governor or that mayor knows there are people going to be hunting for his head. And that's what they're trying to avoid. So they'll do things such as if there's a university in, in that area, they'll tell all the students, if you don't show up to vote and we'll be taking attendance and you don't take a picture of your ballot in favor of whatever, um, then don't expect to have a spot in the dormitory uh, going forward or don't oh, expect to be wow. able to enroll for classes going forward. Um, for all the big state-run firms, basically the, the regional leadership will say to the leadership of those companies, we expect your um, employees to show up to vote and to prove that they voted the correct way. And they'll do that through every different sort of social group in, in that area whether it's universities, old folks' homes, um, places of work, everyone is getting the same pressure to turn out and to vote in the correct way. Now, obviously, they can't check if every single person is voting the right way because, you know, sometimes people don't vote en masse, but they can check um, who voted, how many people voted. And so, therefore, at, at, you know, all the way down to what would be the Russian version, the precinct captain, the pressure is on to get warm bodies at the polling station. And so that's essentially what would have been happening over the previous couple weeks. And so that's what they'll have to do at a certain point when it is safe enough to go back outside. But they don't want to basically keep planning for something unless they know it's going to happen because it is expensive and complicated to really turn out, you know, 70% or whatever amount of 145, 147 million people. So I guess the, the last question I always like to wrap up with a lot of experts is what do you see out on the horizon? Um, you, you know, this plebiscite's going to happen. Um, we assume Putin will want to take term one over again, like you said, uh, which is, a, I've, I've found a very interesting way to describe what he's trying to do, what he's, the, the kind of loophole he's trying to create in the constitution. Um, and what's on the horizon then? What, what would the next 16 years of Putin look like? The entirety of Putin's time in office, going back to being appointed prime minister in 1999, is to make Russia a great power and to make the power of the Russian president unchallenged by other domestic forces, you know, other political elites, um, the public at large, so on and so forth. So what we can expect over the next, let's say 16 to 18 years uh, or 16, yeah, I guess 16 years at this point, um, another four of this term and the next 12 of the, the next two uh, presidential terms is basically grinding away to make tomorrow seem like today, that Russia is in a position to be engaged in Syria, Ukraine, 
Venezuela, Sub-Saharan Africa, all these different places, not because there is a value to any of these particular places to fulfilling, you know, Russia's great power ambitions, but just to make Russia a relevant player in international politics. He's been doing that his entire time in office and his entire reason for existing is to get Russia to a place where the United States acknowledges it as being of the same rank and stature. So that's not going to change. So we're going to see Russia, you know, within limits, because it's not, it's not a country that's doing economically well, so they can't spend to have half a million troops stationed abroad. Um, but what they can do is engage in all the stuff that's relatively cheaper. Disinformation, electronic warfare, um, uh, overnight flights, uh, you know, to just go in deep into the Western Hemisphere. All the stuff that says, hey, look at us, you can't ignore us. Wouldn't it be better to come to the negotiating table instead of deal with us in every, you know, nook and cranny of the world? And when it comes then to domestic policy and domestic politics, what Putin has to do is make sure that he can impose discipline on, this, on basically like the bureaucracy, which is to make sure that he can basically threaten any random bureaucrat anywhere in the country. But that also means that he has to maintain a balance of all the different elite factions. You know, the people who work for the FSB, the rich oligarchs, so on and so forth. And that has to happen at the same time that he keeps the general public out of politics itself. And so what we've seen over the past, let's say, uh, 20 years of Putin is being generally very successful at imposing some amount of discipline on the bureaucracy, very successful in terms of creating balance amongst all the elite factions, and then waxing and waning in terms of the ability to keep the public out of politics. Over the next 16 years, it's going to be more difficult to keep the public out because at a certain point, people are going to get very, very tired that um, he's been around since 1999. Just imagine if Americans were like, oh, in 1999, we had Bill Clinton as president. We have had many lives since that point. But imagine if Bill Clinton, and this is not to rag on Bill Clinton, but just to think if we had a guy for 30 plus years, no matter how great, uh, he's going to be tiresome after a spell. And so May 9th was supposed to be, they were supposed to be partying like it was 1999 on yeah. May 9th. <laughs> and they're not going to get to. Yuval Weber, thanks so much for joining us on this. I, I really appreciate this. And this discussion of historical memory, you know, we should probably have you back on to talk more about this. Just be, and, and the way that Americans function in historical memory too, I think is fascinating. Uh, so I, I would love to have you back on to discuss that sometime. More than happy anytime. That'll do it for this episode of the Need to Know podcast. But don't forget, if you have some topics that you think you'd be interested in hearing about on this podcast, shoot us an email at needtoknow at wilsoncenter.org. And also, take a look at wilsoncenter.org slash events, because a lot of our events have moved into the virtual space, and you can join either by teleconference, webcast, or a webinar. So make sure you go over there and check it out. And until next time, this is the Need to Know podcast. <laughs>